Good evening, everyone. Can you hear me okay? It's good to be with you as we get to worship our God uh, this evening. Uh, tonight, we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So if you want to turn there in your pew Bibles or at the Bible you brought. But before we read God's Word, uh, it's good that we go to God in prayer. Uh, as one theologian says, that we don't walk away from God's Word neutrally. Um, every encounter we have with God's Word, we either grow closer to Him and more intimate with Him, or we grow further away from Him and more distant. And so we need to go to God and ask for His help, that He would draw us near to Him. And so let's go to God in prayer. Would you please pray with me? Our Father who is in heaven, God, Your Word is too great and too marvelous for us. God, we are weak, we are fragile, and we're sinful, God. And we will mess up your word. We will read it wrongly, and we will fail to apply it into our lives and worship you as a result of it. God, help us not just see your word and understand it, but help us behold you through your word. And God, tonight we ask that you would help us receive the gospel of Jesus Christ again joyfully, that you'd empower us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ broadly. And God, you'd help us cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ persistently as we wait for him to return. And God, with these endeavors in mind, we ask for your help. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So if you'll flip there to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 2. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It is the word of God. So, a few years ago, before Jess and I moved to Michigan to work at Western Michigan University, we're getting ready to leave Peoria, where we had spent several years at. But I knew I needed to have one final conversation with a student who was involved in our ministry. I'd spent years with this student. I'd spent late nights with him and early mornings. He had been in a persistent Bible study with me for several years. And more than that, he had had a dramatic conversion. He was living in a life of sin, pursuing drinking and girls and drugs, pursuing his baseball career and all these things. And he had a powerful testimony. He shared the gospel with other students. But as time wore on, it just felt like Eli was his name. His faith was beginning to wane. You see, time had lapsed and pressures and struggles had come into his life. His junior year, the baseball season got cut short due to COVID. And that was a big loss for him. But more than that, 
That summer, several of his family members had passed away that were really close to him. And on top of all those things, he lived with several guys who weren't just not Christians. They were antagonistic towards the Christian faith, always begging him to return to the life he once lived. And over time, the sin got to him, the struggles got to him, and suffering had raised questions in his heart that he had never experienced before, and I knew I had to have one final conversation with him. And what do you say to some of that moment? The words that come out of your mouth must be the most important things. They're not trivial matters, not secondary matters, but when people's faith is on the line, what you say must be the most important things. And just like my friend, the, Paul, the church that Paul is writing to in this letter is facing similar circumstances. You see, just less than a year before this, Paul had visited the city of Thessalonica. And many of these people had come to faith in Jesus Christ out of a life of worshiping many gods. They'd worship the gods of the Roman pantheon, but more functionally, they had been subservient and observant of the king of Rome or Caesar. And so they had lived a life totally in opposition to the God of the Bible. And when Paul came and preached the gospel, they had turned powerfully to Jesus Christ. But after just three and a half, four weeks maybe, Paul and his friends, Timothy and Silas, got driven out of town. People were upset when the gospel came. People were upset when the message of Christianity came and disrupted the way they thought things should be, the way their city was functioning. And so they forcibly drove Paul out, and that left Paul to lead this young, fledgling church on their own. You see, they had no experience with the Bible. They had no spiritual mentors to look up to. And the one person that started the church had now become the source of constant mockery in the city of Thessalonica. And so what are they going to do? What will Paul say to these people who are in this situation? What Paul will say to these, these Christians is of utmost importance. And likely what Paul is doing in this letter is addressing questions that they have posed to him. So after Paul had left the city and been driven out, he sent Timothy, his friend and co-worker, back to check in on the church because he was worried that they had wasted their time and that nothing came out of their time in Thessalonica. And so Timothy visits them and sends a report back to Paul. And we'll get into what exactly that report might have said, but it seems like they're asking Paul questions. And what's happening is that they're asking questions that people who are living lives of complacency and ease would never ask. They're dealing with concerns that people who sit comfortably in their pews week after week would never ask. And so they're dealing with difficult questions, and I think they're asking and posing questions and concerns to Paul that a lot of us are dealing with on a week-to-week -week basis, on a day-to-day -day basis. And so what Paul says to those people matters deeply to us. And so maybe what are some of these questions? We don't know for certain, but just by Paul's writing to them, we can kind of come up with an idea and so the three questions that we're going to address tonight will be these. The first is that the pressure they're dealing with is causing them to ask this type of question. Paul, how do I know that I'm really a Christian? What makes someone a Christian? And how do I know that I really am one? Secondly, Paul, now that you're gone, how can we expect the church to grow? You started it. You were a great leader. But what do we have now? What are we going to do if you're gone? How will we continue the mission? And thirdly, they're asking a very simple question. How do you expect us to go on? All of our friends are calling us to our old, our old lifestyle. Our sin is beckoning back to it. How do you expect us to hold on to the faith in the circumstances that we found ourselves in? 
And so ultimately, as we will see how Paul answers this question, he's going to say something like this, is that the key to the Christian life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we must receive it joyfully, we must share it broadly, and we must believe it continually. And so before we get to exactly how Paul's going to address those concerns, we need to understand something about the way Paul writes this letter. And I think what he's doing here, as we'll see, is something what I want to call like a newlywed dinner table prayer, okay? And so when you see these first couple verses, if you look at verses 2 and 3, Paul seems like he's obviously encouraged, that he has nothing but good things to say to this church. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's sitting there saying, you know, you guys are doing pretty good. And throughout the letter, he doesn't come in with harsh rebukes or stern commands or warnings. He encourages them. How is that possible? People have come out of a life of pagan worship in open sin, now are models and exemplars of the Christian faith? Maybe. I think Paul is genuinely encouraged by their faith. But I think he's doing something else, as I called the newlywed dinner table prayer. And what I mean is this. When Jess and I had first gotten married, Jess hadn't spent a lot of time uh, cooking. And so she would go in, into the kitchen and, and try to prepare something, and it was probably questionable at best. But when we would sit down for dinner, I would say, God, thank you for my wife, and thank you for this meal that she's prepared. And what I, amen, you know, and what I really meant, it wasn't, you know, thank you, God, for helping me marry Rachel Ray or something. What I was really saying is, God, thanks for my wife, and she's trying to cook. I just hope she keeps trying, and she gets better. And thankfully, she has, you know, and so that's a good thing for me. But I think Paul's doing something similar in the letter to the Thessalonians that's key for understanding how he's writing and communicating to them. What he's not saying is, congratulations, you've done it. He's saying, stay in the game. Keep fighting the fight of faith. Keep going. And so as we address these different kind of points in this opening section of this letter, Paul's going to say things that are true about the Thessalonians, but he's subversely saying commands to them. Keep doing it. Or do it like you once did. And so that's a key to understand this letter. And so, what does Paul tell these Christians? Well, in response to that first question, what makes someone a Christian? And how do I know that I really am one? This is kind of what Paul says. He encourages us and them to remember that God saved us through the gospel. Thus, as we once received it joyfully, so we must continue to receive it joyfully. And so what Paul's saying here is that he's reminding them that although they might not belong to the family that they came from, their group of friends in Thessalonica might have disowned them. He's saying you belong to God because of the gospel, and it's meant to encourage them. And so we must ask a couple of questions. What is Paul's gospel? What's he talking about when he says our gospel came to you? And I think what Paul's trying to say here is he knows as time wears on, People forget the basic truths. And so when he just says our gospel, he's calling them to remember what it was he exactly came and told them. So what is Paul's gospel? Well, it consists of a few key factors, and we can get this from the rest of the letter that he wrote to the Thessalonians. The first thing to note is that Paul's gospel is the gospel of King Jesus. And that is in opposition to what I would call the gospel of King Caesar. 
You see, the Thessalonians were living in a city that had a great relationship with the Roman government. And they kind of lived in some kind of contract that worked like this. Rome would say, do these things, and we'll give you peace and security. We'll give you happiness, and we'll give you prosperity and success in your job and comfortable living. But Paul's gospel is the gospel of King Jesus. And so why would anyone believe the gospel of King Jesus when the gospel of Caesar is being told to everyone everywhere? Well, the first great news about the gospel of King Jesus is that Jesus died for us. And what does that mean? Well, one thing I think it means is that Paul's gospel answers more important questions than Caesar's gospel does, and it gives more satisfying answers than Caesar's gospel does. And what I mean is this, is that Paul isn't concerned with helping people live an easy life. He's not concerned with helping people make more money. He's not concerned with making your relationships in this life easier. He says the fundamental problem in this world is that God is holy, and you are not. He says the fundamental problem with your life isn't the circumstance you found yourself in, it's you. It's your sin. And so Paul's gospel is the gospel that deals with sin. And he says Jesus, our new king, died for us. Meaning, the wrath that we deserve from holy God as a result of our sin that would have separated us forever, Jesus has taken. Jesus has taken the wrath that we deserved. And Paul says that's good news. Secondly, King Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead. And what that means is the penalty and consequences of our sin would be physical death and eternal death being hell. But Paul's gospel says that Jesus rose again from the dead, thereby conquering death. And so Caesar's gospel never solves the problem of death. It only solves the problem of making your life easy here, but never solves the problem to happen, what happens to us after we die. But Paul's gospel does because Jesus conquered death. So those who believe in him will never taste physical death ultimately, and they'll never be separated from God forever. But thirdly, Paul's gospel gets at the heart of the problem that the Thessalonians are dealing with day to day, and it's their remaining sin. Paul knows that these Christians, the longer they go on, is they're looking at themselves and asking the question, how can I be a Christian? Look at my life. Look at the sin that I've reverted to. I used to say, I don't want to do that anymore, but I found myself falling back into those patterns again. And Paul says, my gospel, the one I preach to you about King Jesus, it frees you from the power of sin. So those patterns that you keep falling into, the gospel of King Jesus will free you from that power. It frees you from the penalty of sin being the wrath of God. It frees you from the consequences of sin being death. And it also frees you from the ongoing, lingering effects that sin has over you. And that's why Paul's gospel is good news, and he wants them to remember it, and he wants us to remember it. And so this is the answer to what makes someone a Christian. God saves people through the work of Jesus Christ, or what we call the gospel. But the question still remains, how do I know if I'm really a Christian? The Thessalonians are asking, how do I know that I've actually believed that, that I'm really a Christian? In verses 5 and 6, Paul hits several reasons why he's confident that they really are Christians. So he says, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And this is the key part that we're going to spend a little bit of time on. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul hits some issues uh, that he's going to tackle later in the letter. 
And that the gospel came in word. It came in power. It came in spirit and with full conviction. Paul's saying, I'm confident that the gospel worked among you because I know my own life and the way I preached among you. And he's going to deal with that in chapter 2. But Paul says, how do you know? How do you find confidence? He asks the question, you once received the gospel of joy. Are you still receiving it with joy? Are you really people who have received the gospel of Jesus Christ with joy? And so how could they do that? How could they receive a gospel that's so in opposition to the culture they lived in? How did they do it? And why did they do it? And how could we continue to receive the gospel of joy? And why would we do it? The first reason is this. It's treasure. It answers more important questions than any other philosophy or worldview can answer. And it gives more satisfying solutions than any other worldview or philosophy can give. So it's great treasure. The second thing, though, is the gospel doesn't just change our minds. It changes us. It doesn't just change the way we think, the way, the way we understand the world. is that when we receive the gospel, God indwells us with his Holy Spirit and, and enables us to love things that we didn't love. It enables us to think different ways that we weren't able to think before. Is the gospel is better news than just you have to think different? The gospel is good news that says it changes you. It makes you a different person. And they were able to do it because of that. And the third way is that Paul's saying this is just the way of Christians, is they deal with affliction. He says, by receiving the word in joy, you became imitators of me, and you became imitators of the Lord Jesus himself who dealt with much affliction in his life. So it's the way of Christians. What I think Paul's getting at here is maybe can be summarized by a story. And so if you've ever been to the Louisville Slugger Bat Museum in Louisville, Kentucky, Louisville Slugger's a, a baseball bat. So you can go there and you can pick up, you know, tons of baseball bats. In my day, I've held a few baseball bats. My problem was I could never hit a baseball with them. So we can talk about it another time. Um, but when you go there in the museum, uh, there's a particular display that's always stood out to me, and it's a game-used bat um, of Babe Ruth. And I've always thought it was a pretty neat thing, but the really interesting thing about it is the bat was found in someone's attic. And so what I imagine happening is sometime long ago, someone got this bat, maybe from Babe Ruth himself, and they watched a lot of baseball, and they thought, this is a treasure of inestimable value. And someday, it'll be worth a lot of money. It can deal with my financial problems if I sell it. It can give me joy when I look at it. And they thought it was great. But as time wore on and the pressures of life increased, they eventually kind of neglected it and forgot about it, stopped thinking about it. As generations went on, it eventually got pushed to the obscurity of their life and stuck in an attic somewhere. And they probably dealt with financial struggles, right? They probably dealt with stress and they thought, how are we going to overcome this barrier to pay our rent, to send our kids to college and all these things? And they had forgotten the treasure they had sitting in the attic. But finally, they recovered it, and they sold it for a lot of money, uh, which is kind of the end of that story there. But I think many of us as Christians have done that with the gospel. As stress wears on us, as time goes on, as other pressures and distractions come, we have the treasure of the gospel, but we forget about it. We look to other solutions to our problems, and we neglect the greatest treasure that God's given us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, what do we do with that? Well, Paul's encouraged commands, maybe you could call it, to the Thessalonians, he's saying, you once received this with joy. The question is, are you going to continue to receive it with joy? Are you going to continue to live in light of the treasure of the gospel? So my question to you is, have you ever received it with joy? Has Christianity become merely a set of ideas to be agreed with and not a king to be followed? 
The beauty of Paul's gospel is not that it is a good philosophy or logical set of ideas. The great thing about Paul's gospel is that it offers you a person. The beauty of the gospel is that the gospel is Jesus Christ. We don't just need salvation from sin or cleansing from sin. In the gospel, we are offered the one who saves us from sin and the one who cleanses us from sin. The core of Paul's message is Jesus Christ himself. He is the good news. And the question for some of you is, are you still receiving with joy? Has your affection been dulled by pressure or stress or distraction? Have bank accounts, your kids' sports, or your social stigma that comes with following Jesus Christ weared on you and you've forgotten the treasure that is the gospel of Jesus Christ? So thus we must remember that as we were saved by receiving Jesus Christ, so must we also remind ourselves of that truth that we need to continue to receive him with joy. But the second question that Paul addresses to this young church is how is the church going to grow and how is it going to continue? How will the mission go on without the great leader or pastor that is Paul? Well, Paul's solution to this problem is rather than needing a great leader, evangelist, or strategy, the Thessalonians need to be reminded that the same gospel that saved them will save others. So they must share it broadly. The fear that these, these, this young church has is that they can't do what Paul does. They either need Paul to come back or they need him to send a better leader to solve their problem of church growth. And it's a problem that a lot of churches often deal with. But Paul's encouragement is actually really encouraging for all of us is that he says, you don't really need me. You've already done it. You've already been sharing your faith. And so keep doing what you've done. Look at verse 8. Paul says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. It's a crazy comment. One commentator describing what Paul means when he says the word sounded forth states, The image that Paul presents, therefore, is that of a sound. Some commentators say, like the sound of thunder rolling across the hills and valleys of Macedonia. He says that message of the gospel emanating from the Thessalonian Christians and continuing to echo on and on throughout the hills and valleys of Macedonia, Achaia, and beyond. And so the question for us is how do they do it? How do they share their faith so effectively? And what is Paul continuing them, asking them to continue to do? For our purposes, we'll look at two factors of this. One is the motivation Paul gives. And the second is the method that he encourages. And so first, why did they do it? What was their motivation? Well, I think Paul's trying to say is they received the, the word with joy, or the gospel with joy. They shared it with joy. In verse 6, we already saw that Paul encouraged them receiving the word in much affliction with joy. But if you see in the beginning of verse 8, he used the word for. What he's saying is what I've already started to say, that you became imitators of me. He's saying, I'm continuing that thought because some of the way you've imitated me is that you've continued to share your faith. So he says, those who've received the word with joy are also the same ones that have shared the word with joy. And what he's trying to say, I think, is simple. He says it's easy to talk about what we love. And he says, when you first received the gospel, it sprang forth from you without second thought. It was easy to share about what you love and what you loved was Jesus Christ. So he says, do you still love Jesus Christ like that? Is the gospel coming forth from you naturally? But second, what method did they use? How did they do this so effectively? And this is really encouraging. Is that they did what Paul did. He said, you became imitators of me and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you shared the word broadly. You shared it diligently. 
So what did Paul do? How did he share the gospel with the Thessalonians? And I think we must address a common misconception about Paul's evangelistic ministry. We often think that Paul gathered a group of people in like, you know, a courtyard somewhere, a street corner, and then shared the gospel. But the reality might be a little bit different. Paul, when he would show up in a city, would walk into the Jewish synagogue, the place where Jews met on a weekly basis. And there, he would share the gospel of Jesus Christ from the scriptures. But the Gentiles wouldn't show up at those gatherings, so how did he get to them? And what a lot of scholars think he did is he took place, and what he participated in was what we would call workplace evangelism. Paul would go set up a, work, a workshop somewhere in the city. He built tents, he fixed leather goods, fixed shoes, things like that. And what he would do is people came to the workshop, he would start a conversation with them and ask them, well, what's your spiritual background? Well, what are you interested in? What kind of problems are you dealing with? And he would begin to share the gospel with them. And as people responded favorably, he would set up one-on-one -on -one appointments and meet up with them later in the week and encourage them and instruct them in the faith. And that's how a lot of this church came to faith in Jesus Christ. And so when Paul says, you imitated me by sharing the word, what he's saying is, you shared the gospel with your coworkers and your friends. He says, you went forth and shared the gospel with the people you love. And maybe an illustration to understand this is Paul's not encouraging them to do what I would call like airstrike evangelism or special forces evangelism, where we think, out there, that's enemy territory. So we're going to go in as quick as we can and get out as fast as we can. Paul's saying, go be with them. Go spend your life with them. Go share the gospel, not with enemies, but with your friends, with the people that you love, with the people you spent your life with, saying those are the people to go share the gospel with. And what Paul's calling them to be, he's saying, don't just go do evangelism, be an evangelist. Don't just go do the work of evangelism, be the type of person who's sharing their faith with everyone they know, because it's your deepest joy. Don't have this behind the enemy lines mentality. Go share it with your friends. So what he's telling them is, as you imitated me by joyfully sharing the gospel with your neighbors and friends, continue to do so. And I think what that means for us is we need to consider where do we spend most of our time around people who aren't Christians. For you, if you're in college, maybe it's your dorm. You spend all year having late nights, early mornings, going to class, working out the gym, playing intramural sports with people. They're your friends. Share the gospel with them. Or maybe it's your sports team or your fraternity. Go share the gospel in those places with people who are already your friends. For you in the world, maybe it's the people in your neighborhood that you need to have a cookout and invite them over and have a conversation about their spiritual beliefs. Maybe it's the guy that you've been sitting next to in a cubicle for years that you need to build a deeper relationship with and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Or maybe it's your kid's sports team that there's other, team other teammates of your son or daughter. Go befriend the parents. Share the gospel with them. Become friends with them. Give your life to them. Imagine if our church, if the people here committed to that lifestyle, how the gospel would sound forth powerfully from these walls out into the world, and it would roll through Kalamazoo and West Michigan in the world. It would be powerful. And that's what Paul is calling us to do. But the reality is that to these questions, we might say, sure, that sounds good. But the reality is, these Christians, and some of us, maybe most of us, we're barely hanging on. And we're asking, how are we going to make it? How, not, how am I going to impact someone else out there? How am I going to hang on to the faith? How am I believe even in the first place with all these things that I'm dealing with? 
How are we going to make it, Paul? We're barely holding on ourselves. So what Paul wants to say lastly in the introduction of this letter is that the same gospel that saves us and others sustains us and sanctifies us as well. So we must wait for Christ expectantly. So what Paul recognizes is the issue isn't just reminding them to receive the gospel joyfully as they once did and so assure them of their salvation. It's not as simple as encouraging them to continue the mission of the church by sharing their faith with friends and neighbors. Paul recognized that the daily reality of of life in Thessalonica and maybe Kalamazoo or western Michigan is surrounding them with immense pressure to revert to their old way of life and so forsake their faith. In this, I think Paul gives them three instructions for daily living in light of the gospel to persevere in the faith. And so the first is this, don't look back. If you look at verse 9, Paul says, he's, so what, what he's saying in verse 9 is this, you went and shared your faith with all these people, right? He's like, and they're like, yeah, okay. Well, what'd you tell them? He says, you reported, they reported to us because we know these people that you share the gospel with, what reception we had among you, and how you turned to God to serve, or turned to, from idols to serve the living and true God. And Paul's asking them, are you still doing it? Are you still turning from idols to serve the living true God? Or have you reverted to your old sin and your old patterns of life and your old patterns of worship? Have you gone back? What Paul's trying to say is, as you once did, are you still doing? And you must keep doing. And what's happening here is in Thessalonica, they're probably worshiping actual idols, you know, little figurines of like gods representing different gods. But... Or they might be worshiping, you know, the Roman pantheon, Dionysius or Zeus or something, and they're kind of functioning worshiping the Roman government. But their figurative idols are the same same ones that we have, that daily lure us away from our faith in Christ. Things like this, that we want and we worship times, peace and security. We worship and love money and success. We love and we beg to have social standing and comfort. And we long deeply for approval from our friends and family. And the Thessalonians are dealing with the same pressures in their life as we are today. And what Paul's trying to hit on here when he says don't look back is what I would call the deadly deception of nostalgia. So if you ever remember going on vacation like as a kid, is you only have fond memories, you know, when you went to Disney World or wherever you went, right? But if you really think about the details, you remember I'm sitting in the back seat and, and dad's getting mad at me. And our car broke down halfway. And the trip cost a lot of money and it put a lot of pressure on us. And that made life kind of miserable for the next few months. Is the reality is the nostalgia is really deceptive. And sin uses nostalgia really well. Sin often says, look back at how easy your life was. And how happy you were. And how much fun you had when you just did whatever you wanted. Their friends and coworkers and families saying, was your life so much better before this Jesus character came in? Wasn't it so much easier when you tried to make as much money as you could and you tried to make everyone happy? Isn't your life so much harder? Don't you want to go back? Is that sin and idols often use the trick of nostalgia to lure us in. But what Paul says is that idols promise, but they can never deliver. And so when Paul says that you turn to the living and true God, what he's trying to say is your idols are dead and deceptive, is they promise lots of things, but they lie. And they have no power to give you what they actually promise. 
But the living and true God is able to do what he promises, and what he promises is always good. It will never lead you astray. So continue to turn to him, continue to serve him, and love him. But the second thing Paul says to instruct us, he says, be sure to look up. Jesus is reigning from heaven. So if you look at the beginning of verse 10, he says, and we wait for his son from heaven. Paul's wording is evoking a sense of power and might from Jesus. Jesus is ruling over the whole world, and he has conquered our greatest enemy, which is sin. And eventually, he will conquer all of our foes. Thus, Paul is encouraging them and us not to grow weary of waiting for Christ to make things right. He's reminding them that though things aren't easy right now, our king still reigns, and he will always reign. So he says, don't forfeit your allegiance to Jesus and turn for a quick fix. But lastly, Paul encourages them to eagerly look forward. So at the end of verse 10, Paul says this, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's the one to whom we are to look to. So in our daily fight of faith, we could probably often be accused of being nearsighted. We get overwhelmed by the here and now. The Thessalonians and we are daily pressured by our need of jobs, our need of relational ease, our need for the comfort of our family, or the comfort we need from our family. Daily people around them were convincing that Paul was crazy, and Paul's message was pointless and deceptive. And I'm sure you've dealt with those pressures as well. Daily, those people were hindering the advance of the gospel, and were attempting to persuade these young Christians that they were going to be on the wrong side of history. But Paul keys them into a secret. He says, Jesus is coming back. He says, Jesus will reign forever. So those who face Christ won't have, won't have to face the wrath of God. In contrast to this, Paul will later say in the letter that those who are hindering the advancement of the gospel will face the wrath of God. That those hindering the advancement of the gospel displease the true and living God. Thus Paul is telling them that though their faith looks small and insignificant now, Christ still reigns and those who hold on to the faith will never face God's wrath. Christ will restore all things under his rightful reign, so keep going keep pressing on. Thus, in your life, you must fight to not look back, you must continue to look up, and you must cultivate a longing for Jesus as you look forward. And in this way, the gospel that saves us will sustain us as we wait expectantly for Jesus himself. So Paul shows that though this church is small, weak, and immature in their faith, in so many ways, there is hope for them not only to make it, but to flourish in their Christian life. And in face of pressure and trial, they may have longed for a great leader to save the day or an awesome program to make their lives easier. But ultimately, this church's greatest need wasn't Paul. It wasn't Timothy, and it wasn't Silas. Furthermore, our greatest need isn't a great preacher. It's not a great campus outreach worker or mentor. Our hope isn't in the greatness of the preacher, but it's in the greatness of what is preached. But even that may not go far enough. The key to the Christian life and these important questions that we've asked and the Thessalonians have posed to us isn't just to know something new. It's not just that we need delivered from wrath or saved from sin. What we need is the one who saves us. We need the one who took our wrath. You see, the key ingredient in the Christian life is nothing less than Jesus Christ himself. Thus, we must continue to receive him with joy share him with others broadly, and believe in him continually. 
Thus, this church, to this church, in dire consequences, Paul gives them the most important truths. He must. Their circumstances are so intense. The Thessalonians' greatest need in answer to their questions is Jesus Christ. If they are to make it amidst these trying circumstances, they must receive him with joy now, even as they did when they first believed. If they want their church to grow, they must share Christ joyfully, as that message sounded forth from them when they first believed. And lastly, if they want to continue to persevere, they must look to Jesus in the midst of their trials and circumstances to give them the perspective they need to persevere. The message is the same for us in our fight for faith. We must keep receiving the gospel of Jesus with joy, sharing him broadly, and waiting for him eagerly. Please pray with me. Father, you are good. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is great news. Help us not forget it. Help us not neglect it. Help us not look to other solutions to our problems, but look to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us continue to receive it with joy. Help us to continue to share it broadly. And help us cling so closely to Jesus Christ as life and the pressures calling us back to our old life call so loudly. God, give us the grace we need to cling to him. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.